Are you a good listener? Are you someone who listens well to what others are saying? Calvin Coolidge was a US president in the 1920s. He said, it takes a great man to be a good listener. He would say it today, I'm sure he'd say it would take a great person to be a good listener. Some of you uh, uh, women here might think that the men aren't good listeners, but uh, it takes a great person to be a good listener. Ernest Hemingway, an American author, he put it this way. He said, most people never listen. John Wayne, uh, US actor and uh, icon, he said this, you're short on ears and long on mouth. I wonder if we're not very good at listening. We'd rather speak than listen. Or very often we'll listen rather than to understand, but to respond. We listen to think, is there something I can catch on so that I can say something? Jesus wanted people to listen to him. He wanted them to listen and he wanted them to think. And that's one of the reasons that he spoke in parables. They're not just nice stories and uh, nice little stories, but they're, they're, uh, he was trying to get people to listen and get people to engage and get people to think. Very often what we think of these nice little stories have a real sting in the tail, which was aimed at those he was speaking to. He wanted people to listen. A few weeks ago, Seth was speaking to us from uh, Mark chapter 4 on the parable of the sower and the seed. And I don't know if you've noticed in that parable, when you read the account of it, the first word is listen. Listen. And the last word is listen. He that has ears, let him hear. Listen. In this uh, parable that uh, Jesus told, I don't know if you noticed the word listen in there. Verse 6, the Lord said, listen to what the unjust, uh, the unjust judge says. Here in this account, we read of this parable of the uh, the persistent widow. Uh, I'm not sure it's a parable I've heard people speak on much, although I know when we were going through Luke's gospel a while ago, uh, I can't remember if it was Joseph or Seth spoke on it, but it was four years ago. So we've got every good reason to have forgotten, I think. Um, but uh, uh, this parable, it's an interesting story. It's a parable uh, of a demanding woman who wants justice. Did you notice the word justice in there? She wanted what was right. She wanted what was fair. She wanted justice. Here it says, uh, in a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. She kept coming back. She had every right to be demanding. She wanted justice. It wasn't fair. There's only two characters in the story. This demanding, nagging woman who wants justice and this hard-nosed judge who refused to do anything. You notice what it said? He kept sending her away. He kept sending her away. And there might have been various reasons in the context of where the story was told. There might have been uh, various reasons why people would think that the judge would send her away. Firstly, this was a woman coming to her and in that society... Uh, probably had a low place in the culture. Secondly, it says she was a widow, so she didn't have a, a husband or a man to represent her. She was probably poor, 
So we didn't have any money to bribe the judge with and those sort of things may well have gone on in that culture at that time as it probably does elsewhere in the world today. But also it says about him in the story that he didn't fear God and he didn't care much about people. Verse 4, it says that. But he finally gives in to this woman. He finally says, verse 4, for some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. He finally gives in. So there's a story, very simple story. Two characters, uh, a, a, a demanding woman who wants justice and a hard-nosed judge who refuses to listen. But what does it mean? What can we learn from this? Why is it here? What is Jesus trying to say? A quick reading of it might leave you thinking, well, if we pray hard enough and persist hard enough with God, he will answer. So we can finish here and say, well, let's all go home and pray harder. I'm sure that you realise it's not quite that straightforward and that's not what this parable is here for. And it, it might raise some questions as we think about this parable. What's it really all about? Is God a good listener? Is God a good listener? Ask the question, are you a good listener? Is God a good listener? Do we have to keep going on at him so that he might hear us and answer? Or it might just raise the question, how persistent do I need to be for God to answer my prayers or for God to listen? What does it mean? Well, I trust by the time we get to the end of our time together this morning that we will have some idea of that. So uh, there's the parable. Uh, Thought briefly about the meaning, but we haven't got there yet as to what it is. But we need to look, as we so often do with the parables, we need to look at the context in what's going on around. Chapter 18 follows chapter 17. Verse 1 of chapter 18 follows verse 37, chapter 17. There were no chapter divisions and verses there uh, when it was first written. And over the previous chapters, you've got a number of incidents of Jesus speaking to the Pharisees uh, or Jesus speaking to the disciples. And sometimes the parables are aimed at the Pharisees and sometimes it's aimed at the disciples. Um, and the Pharisees and disciples seem to speak of two kinds of people. And we could say it's those who would listen and those who won't. The Pharisees who think they know it all and won't listen. And the disciples who are the followers of Jesus who are wanting to listen and wanting to learn. Although, if you noticed in those last verses we read in uh, in Luke 18, they don't always listen and they don't always understand, they don't always get it. So that's a slight generalization generalization there. But through the previous chapters, and you'll sort of see Jesus telling these stories, telling these parables, sometimes to the Pharisees, sometimes to the disciples, sometimes speaking to them, challenging them, sometimes speaking to the disciples and trying to challenge and help them. And to see the context of what's going on here, we go to the previous chapter, and if you look in Luke chapter 17, have a look if you've got a Bible, and you'll see the question asked by the Pharisees, Verse 20, once, having been asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, 
Jesus replied, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is within you. So the context of this parable is set by this question about when is the kingdom of God going to come? And Jesus firstly answers them in those verses that I read. And then in verse 22, it says he then he turns to his disciples. So he's speaking to the disciples and speaks to them. And this parable is that context of speaking to the disciples. But it's in the context of the question about when will the son of man come? And verses 22 to 37 of chapter uh, 17, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and giving them insights into what the days will be like when the Son of Man, and that's a phrase that's used in Luke very often, and uh, um, uh, when Jesus returns. So he's just spoken to them about what it'll be like when Jesus returns. And then, after that, he tells them this parable. So he tells them the parable, there it is in verses 2 to 5 of chapter 18. He tells them to listen, listen to what the judge is saying, and then he asks a question. And if you notice that, at the, uh, after the parable, he's then said something else, and he asks this question, However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So the whole context of this parable, this story, is tucked between um, these two questions, one that the Pharisees asked and one that Jesus asked. The question that the Pharisees asked, when is the kingdom of God coming? And the question that Jesus asks, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? The context is Christ's return. The fact that Jesus is coming back. The context is actually living in the days between when Jesus first came and Jesus comes again, which the Bible says he will come. It doesn't say if he comes, it says when he comes, he is coming. So that context is relevant to us today. So what's this parable got to do with waiting for Christ's return? What's a, what's a, a, a desperate woman pleading for justice and a, and a, a, and a nasty judge who's hard-hearted, a hard-nosed, hearted, a hard-nosed judge? Hard-hearted, what is it anyway? But what's that got to do with, with us today and Christ's return? Well, I've, I've turned it into five questions to ask you this morning to help us understand what this parable is about. So here we go, five questions. And the first one is, why did Jesus tell the story? Trying to understand the parables isn't always straightforward. Sometimes it is. Um, the parable of the sower, which Seth spoke on a few weeks ago, and the soils and the seeds. Um, later on in the chapter, you find an explanation of what it's all about. It's there, it tells you. Other times it's not quite so clear. But for this parable, Matthew Henry says, uh, the parable has its key hanging on the door. Did you spot it? The key's there, hanging on the door. Look at what it says in verse 1. Then, so having had the question about the second coming, spoken to his disciples what the days would be like, then Jesus told his disciples to show them they should always pray and not give up. So there it is. 
we should always pray, you know, the disciples should always pray and not give up. And for us, we should always pray and not give up. You see, Jesus is preparing his disciples for what is to come. He knows what's coming and he knows what they're like. He knows what's coming because he knows the reason he came, to go to the cross. And that's why I read those last few verses in, uh, or those verses 31 to 34, because it says Jesus took his disciples aside and said, we're going to Jerusalem. I'm on the way to the cross. The Son of Man, uh, the prof- um, all that's said, written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be handed over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will insult him, spit on him, flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. He knows what's coming. He's going to the cross. He knows what these disciples are like. They're fickle. They're going to run and flee. To be fickle is to be not firm or steady in affection, behavior, opinion or loyalty. And we're like that as well. He knows that they're they're faint-hearted. He knows that there'll be a time coming when they're downhearted and discouraged. He knows that's coming for them. And he says to them, and he tells them this story, there it is, verse 1, showing them that they should always pray and not give up. And what is true for them is true for us today. We only have to look around our world and there's plenty to make us faint-hearted, downhearted and discouraged. It seems that our world is falling apart, whether it be the pandemic and we're still on this bumpy road to recovery and we don't quite know what's going to happen next, whether it be Afghanistan and all that's going on there, whether it be heat waves in Europe with the highest temperatures on record in southern Italy or torrential rain in Japan. What is going on in our world? Or it might be what is going on in your world. It might not be some of those things, but there might be far seem far less significant, but they're very real for you and you feel faint-hearted and downhearted and discouraged. And what Jesus is saying to these disciples, he's saying to us, we should pray and not give up, not lose heart. How can we do that? And what's this parable about this persistent widow nagging at the judge and this hard-nosed judge got to do with that? So the first question, why did Jesus tell us the story? The answer there is uh, the key is hanging on the door. My second question is this. What do you think God is like? What do you think God is like? If you had to write uh, a paragraph, what is God like? What would your answer be? A few uh, weeks ago, I was preaching over in Misham and uh, I, I spoke on Luke 15 and the, uh, the parable of the lost Son, And I began the sermon by asking this question, what do you think God is like? Maybe you think he's like, and it's what I said then, and I'll say it again. Maybe you think he's like the, the head teacher at the school next door. If you do well, you're sent to him. If you do wrong, you're sent to him. Or maybe you think God is like the queen, um, a great figurehead, but actually not with much power. Or maybe you think God is like a commander in chief. Total control and not to be questioned. 
Or maybe you think God is like a benevolent old man handing out favours to anyone and everyone and overlooking the wrong that we do. Well, four very quick views of what people might think God is like. And I'm sure if if I were to ask you and you were to say, you might have something of that or some variation of that. And incidentally, I think just on that parable of the lost son, I don't think it is the parable of the lost son. I know I've spoken on it here before. I think it's the parable of the compassionate father towards two lost sons um, who are both in need of the father's compassion. And there in Luke 15, in that story of the lost son, the comparison is made between the father in the story and God. But when we come to Luke 18, it's not a comparison that's being made. Jesus isn't saying, uh, comparing uh, God to this, this judge and we need to twist his arm as hard as we can and um, then maybe he'll, he'll give us what we want. It's not a comparison that's being made, but a contrast that is being made. And this whole chapter is a chapter of contrasts. If you read your, your way through it, you've got this, the contrast of this widow and this judge. Uh, you've got the contrast of the, the, the Pharisee, look at me. Uh, the tax collector, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You've got the contrast of children and adults in the few verses after that. And you've got the contrast of a rich man um, and then a poor beggar. What is God like? I think the point of this parable is that he is not like this judge. He is not like this judge. The judge, unjust, an unjust judge, that's the word it used. A judge judge that that doesn't care. A judge that has no compassion. He says he says it of himself in the parable. Even though I don't fear God or care about men. He couldn't care less. He's got no time for people. No respect for God. And he's described as the unjust judge. That is what the judge is like. But that is not what God is like. God is the righteous judge. The one who does care. The one who is full of compassion. The one who will do justly. Justice is what is the very definition of God. Or God is the very definition of justice. If the judge gave this widow justice because she nagged, how much more will God give us justice? Because he cares and is full of compassion. When life seems unfair, and it is, and my children always used to tell me off for saying that, but it is, life is unfair and unjust. Remember that God is just and God will do justly. Oh yes, we might have to wait a little while. It doesn't always bring that justice that we want. We might have to wait and we might have to wait until Jesus comes again. And this is the context of the parish, uh, the, the parable and the passage, uh, you know, living in these times before Jesus comes again and justice is done. Remember that God is just and will do justice. God is not like that judge. What is God like? He's the creator and the sustainer of everything, all things. He's the giver of every good and perfect gift. He's the one who provides our daily bread. 
the one who forgives our daily sins, the one who delivers us from daily temptations and leads us in the paths of righteousness. That is what God is like, full of compassion. He is lavish. He is extravagant. He is generous. He cares. He loves. He provides. He protects. He is not like that judge. He is the father who cares. So, there we have it. Why did Jesus tell the story? What do you think God is like? Have you grasped that this is what God is like and not like that judge? Question number three. Who are these chosen ones that he's talking about? Did you spot it there? Verse seven. Will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off. Who are these chosen ones? I think we can get very hung up on this word. Um, you've got to remember that when the New Testament writ- was written, the word Christian didn't exist. That only came later. It was actually used as an insult. You'll find it there in the book of Acts. And, uh, but it's what we, the word that we use today to describe those who are the chosen ones. Those who, those who have turned from sin called out to God for mercy, like that tax collector in that next story. Those who are trusting in Christ. Those like the tax collector, trusting in God's mercy, not like the Pharisee, trusting in their own righteousness and self-confidence. Who are these chosen ones? Those who have the privilege of calling God their father, of calling God their father. Is that you this morning? Many of you I know. Some of you I don't know so well. But is that you? Can you call him your father? Have you turned from your sin? And are you trusting in this wonderful saviour? Have you, like that tax collector, said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner? Who are these chosen ones? His children, those trusting in Christ. And if you're trusting in Christ today, that's you. And remember that Jesus is teaching by contrast, not comparison. Because think about this woman. Okay, Uh, We are not like that woman. The woman was a stranger. The Christian, if we're trusting in Christ, is a child of God, cared for by God. The woman, she had no one to represent her. The Christian has Jesus Christ as our advocate. It's a lovely word, isn't it? An advocate, someone who represents. This woman was taken to a court of law with no one to represent her. The Christian comes into God's presence with Jesus Christ representing them. And we come to not a court of law, but a throne of grace. The woman, she wanted justice, but she was pleading out of her poverty. Uh, The Christian, we come with God's riches, which have been poured out to meet the needs that we have. We're not like that woman. If we're trusting in Christ, we're his treasured possession, his treasured children. And 
Uh, it speaks of crying out day and night. And we can cry out day and night, not because he doesn't listen or might not be listening, but does listen and because he cares. Isn't that a wonderful thought? That whatever our need, whatever, whatever our situation, whatever our burden, whatever our hang-ups, we can cry out to God because, he's, because he is the Father who cares. The compassionate Father and we are his treasured possession adopted into his family. So who are these chosen ones he's talking about? The Christian. Those who are trusting in Christ. And then fourthly, my next question is this. Do you pray or have you given up? Do you pray or have you given up? Remember, this is what the parable is all about. There it is again. Verse one. Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. Jesus is saying when the days are difficult, when life is tough, when things aren't going your way, pray and don't give up. But he's actually saying when the days are good and life seems easy and things are going your way, pray and don't give up. Jesus is preparing his disciples and teaching them for what's to come, the difficult days ahead. But it does speak to us too, at whatever days we find ourselves in this morning. So what does it mean to pray and not give up? What is that, praying and not give up? And it's not just to do with joining in with a public prayer when somebody prays uh, at the front and saying amen to that. But it is to do with that. It's not to do with just at home when you're spending time praying and uh, 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 talking to God uh, in your own home. But it is to do with that as well. It's it's far more than that. This week in my preparation, I came across uh, uh, this and uh, these five things. And I I found it really helpful. uh, So I'm going to share them with you. But five things really uh, to do with praying and not giving up. And what, what it means to pray and not give up. And it's more than just praying. We shouldn't say just praying, but it's more than just that time we spend when we pray. So here we are, five things. What's it mean to pray and not give up? Firstly, it means offering our desires up to God. It's all to do with giving him our desires and bringing everything before him. Psalm 62 verse 8 says, Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart to him, for God is our refuge. And that was true for the psalmist in the Old Testament, and that can be true for us today. Trust in him, At all times, you people, pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. When we pray, we are pouring out our hearts to him. We are offering up our desires to him. We're telling him how we feel. And that's not just in prayer, but it's an attitude of life as we go about our lives. So what's it mean to pray and not give up? First, it means offering up our desires to God. Secondly, it means surrendering our will to God. Surrendering our will to God. Do you remember in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is teaching his disciples to pray, and in the Lord's Prayer, it says, your will be done. So when we pray, we're praying, Lord, your will be done. That speaks of 
surrendering our wills to God. We can't expect to, to go around um, wanting what we want and not yielding ourselves to God and thinking we can just go to him with our prayers and that he will answer. Praying and not giving up is, is surrendering our very wills over to God, as Jesus did. In, and it was a struggle for him in Luke 22, further on in the book. Do you remember when he prayed at Gethsemane, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. If you are willing, take this cup from me. There was desperation in that. But then he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. And uh, uh, praying and not giving up does mean surrendering what we want and yielding to God in that way. And then thirdly, praying and not giving up means entering into conversation with God. Prayer is not just, it's not just one way. It's a dialogue, not a monologue. Yes, it's speaking, but it's listening as well, listening to what God is saying, being in tune with God. And that's why we listen to the scriptures. That's why we read the scriptures, so that God can speak to us. And then we can respond to that. It's communion with God, conversation with God. It's two-way. So it's not just having a prayer list and, yes, have a list and have things to pray for. But it's an attitude of wanting to hear from God and uh, c- uh, have conversation with God, which will help us when the days are difficult and it will help us to not give up. I like the account of uh, little Samuel uh, there in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 3, uh, and he hears a voice, and he doesn't know who it is that's speaking. Uh, but eventually he, he he's told and he learns, and eventually he says, Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That is a prayer. That is an attitude of prayer. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Praying and not giving up is enjoying conversation with God. And then fourthly, what does it mean to pray and not give up? It means to live in the presence of God. Another verse from the psalm, Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing I ask from the Lord, this only do I seek, that that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. And I don't think the Psalmist was saying, I want to spend the rest of my days locked up inside the temple. It's speaking of far more of that, of enjoying the presence of God, dwelling in his presence and uh, gazing on his beauty. So praying and not giving up is, is living in the presence of God. And if we're going to be doing that and enjoying that and living like that, We need to be offering up our desires to God. We need to be surrendering our wills to God. We need to be in conversation with God. It's not just ticking the box, you know, tomorrow morning saying, well, I've done my little prayer time and I've prayed for my things, I've ticked the box, and now I can get go and get on in the rest of my day. It's from a daily walk with God. And by a daily walk with God, I don't just mean a little bit of time each day spent with God and out into the day, but that daily... uh, Walking with God, as it were, being aware of him or trying to be aware of him and and enjoying his presence, whether it be driving the car, whether it be in the office, whether it be round the meal time at home, whether it be 
at the gym, whether it be when you're out on your bike, as I like to do, whether it be when you're preparing the meal, whether it be when you're doing your studies, um, writing your essay, whatever it is, just living, as it were, in the presence of God and just being aware of him. I think that's what it means to pray and not give up. Living in the presence of God. And then finally, on top of all that, it means experiencing the peace of God. Experiencing the peace of God. When the days are difficult, when you feel like giving up, doing all of these things, praying, offering up our desires, surrendering our will, enjoying the conversation, living in his presence, that is the place where we'll experience the peace of God. Paul writing to the church in Philippi says these verses is the first verse I ever learnt, but like Andy, I'm good at forgetting things as well. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And then what does it say? And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Isn't that wonderful? When the days are difficult, we can experience the peace of God in the midst of the trials and the challenges, enjoying and experiencing the peace of God, which passes all understanding. And and I like to just put it this way, which we can't explain. How can I know peace in this situation? When the world's falling apart around me, how can I know God's peace? And the answer is because God is not like that judge, because he's a compassionate father, and that we are his children, precious to him, and that his grace is sufficient for every need that we have. That's what it means to not uh, to pray and not give up. So, do you pray, or have you given up? Hopefully there's some helpful things there to help you as you pray. And then finally, my last question is this. From verse 8, will you be found faithful when Jesus returns? Will you be found faithful when Jesus returns? And I think we could ask that in a slightly different way. Will you be found faithful tomorrow? And the next day? And the next day? And the next day? Will you be praying and not giving up? Will you be doing those things constantly that we've just thought about? I began by asking the question, are you a good listener? And let me finish with this question, is God a good listener? And the answer is a resounding yes. Yes. He's the loving, compassionate father who cares for his children, who loves to hear them pray, who loves to see us walking with him and enjoying him. And trusting him. Oh, he won't always answer in quite the way we expect. And we might, he might not always answer at the time we expect, as it clearly shows in this parable. But he is just. And he is good. And he is kind. And he does listen. And he does want us to be those who pray and not give up. Will you be hearing, will he be hearing from you today and in the coming days ahead?